one week. We are now into the third week of Easter, uh, where we journey through the lectionary through the life of Christ. Um, and now we are transitioning today into the life of the apostles. So we were in John last week. If you weren't here, we talked about uh, the disciples being locked in the room. And today we are going from room to road. Um, but before we, uh, before we get started, let's pray together. Uh, if you will uh, pray with me um, the second half of that. Sisters and brothers in Christ, God invites us to bring our doubts and our fears, our joys and our concerns, our petitions and praise, and offer them for the earth and all of its creatures. Receive these prayers, O God, and transform us through them that we may have eyes to see and hearts to understand not only what you do on our behalf, but what you call us to that your realm will come to fruition and glory. Amen. All right. So it's baseball season. Who's excited about the beginning? One, two people? All right, all right. Four people like baseball. Great. This is going to go really well. Uh, What else should I talk about today? Uh, All right, we'll talk about baseball. So it's the first week of baseball season, and the Dodgers had a no-hitter through seven and a third, and they pulled their pitcher. First game, first game. Did you watch that, Bob? It was first game, and they pulled him, and then lost, so that's good. You're crazy. He could have been a legend. He could have been a legend. Anyway, so one thing I think we can agree on is that the best movie of all time is The Sandlot. Yes. Who here here has not seen The Sandlot? All right. Yeah, Amazon, I think the DVD is probably like, DVDs, there's these little round discs that you put in a player, and I don't know, you can find it somewhere. The Sandlot, if it's not the greatest movie, it is the greatest movie set in the San Fernando Valley, so there you go. So let me set up this clip that we're about to watch. The Sandlot is a movie from the early 90s, and it follows this uh, ragtag group of uh, kids and their baseball team. So it's summer, it's the early 1960s in the San Fernando Valley, and these boys are just tossing around the ball on the sandlot. The uh, kid there in the blue and white striped shirt is new to the neighborhood. Kid cannot play baseball to save his life. Tries to get his stepdad to go out, throw, catch in the yard, busts him in the eye. So in the clip we're about to watch, you'll notice he has a a, uh, black eye. So he can't play, and he wants to. Uh, he wants to get. He wants to make some friends. He's new to town. He wants to make some friends. So he's going to go out and try to toss around with these guys, um, taking the advice of his mother. And uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Small, but second. Okay. Told you, Benny. We told you. Come on, Benny. Why'd you do that? 
toy, you know? No. I can't. I don't know how. Thanks for taking me here. But I think I better go. You think too much. Man, this is baseball. You gotta stop thinking. Just have fun. I mean, if you were having fun, you would have caught that ball. You ever have a paper up? I helped the guy once. Okay. Well, chuck it like you would throw a paper. When your arm gets here, just let go. Just let it up. Steady. How do I catch it? Just stand there and stick your glove out in the air. I'll take care of it. Smalls, you're at second. Okay. All right, so for, for Scotty Smalls, this is quite the conversion moment. From there, he becomes a you know, part of the baseball team. He becomes a part of the gang, and this is his conversion moment. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, a different type of conversion moment, but one which uh, you know, the Christian religion hinges on, and that's the conversion of Saul Paul. Uh, but before we get there, we're going to transition from uh, Sandlot and baseball to a little Eastern meditation. So, we Eastern meditation—that's weird. Yeah, we're going to we're going to do a little bit Eastern meditation before we before we read our scripture passage. And it may sound weird, but it'll it'll make sense in time. All right. So, if you'll meditate with me, close your eyes. And this is a Jewish uh, a meditation um, that many uh, ra- first century rabbis uh, would partake in. As I watched, suddenly a driving storm came out of the north, a great cloud, flashing fire with brightness all around. And at its center, in the middle of the fire, there was something like a gleaming amber. And inside that were forms, four living creatures. This is this is what they look like. Each of them form a human being, and their four faces and their four wings. Their four feet look like proper feet, and the soles of their feet, calves and hoods, and they shone like burn, burnished bronze. Human hands 
were under their wings and on all four sides. And all four creatures had faces and wings, and their wings touched other wings. And when they moved, they went each straight ahead without turning. And above the dome of their heads there appeared something like lapis in the form of a throne. Above the form of the throne there was a form that looked like a human being, and above what looked like a waist. And I saw something like a gleaming amber, something like fire, enclosing it all around. Below looked like a waste. I saw something that appeared to be fire, but there was brightness showing, showing all around. And just as rainbow lights up a cloud on a rainy day, so the brightness shone all around me. This was how the form of the Lord's glory appeared. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the sound of someone speaking to me. All right, so this meditation, which seems strange, is actually taken uh, from the book of Ezekiel in the Bible. And a lot of Jewish rabbis would uh, read this, meditate on this, pray on this. And the idea was that this came, this was a vision of Yahweh, seeing a glimmer of God, the God of Israel. Uh, Not seeing the God of Israel face to face, but just catching a waist or a foot you know, this idea of a a rainbow and a cloud, but I can only catch some of the light. And there is this glory in the sky that is mysterious and interesting. And many scholars think that this could have been what Paul had in mind. Maybe Paul was saying this on the road to Damascus. Maybe Paul had said this months or years past, you know, in his training. Someone that was a biblical scholar himself. Uh, that this meditation may have been on his mind. And as they read our story for the day, uh, I think this meditation really comes to life. Back to Saul, this fuming, raging, hateful man who wanted to kill every last one of the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest in Jerusalem for authorization to purge all the synagogues in Damascus of followers of the way of Jesus. His plan was to arrest, arrest and chain any of Jesus' followers, women as well as men, and transport, transport them back to Jerusalem. He traveled north towards Damascus with a group of companions. Imagine this, a light flashes from the sky around you. Saul fail, falls to the ground at the sound of a voice. Why are you attacking me? Lord, who are you? Then he hears these words, shocking, unexpected words that will change his life forever. I am Jesus. I am the one you are attacking. Get up, enter the city. You will learn that there that what you are uh, you will learn what you are about to do. His other traveling companions just stand there, paralyzed, speechless because they too heard the voice but there is nobody in sight. Saul rises to his feet, his eyes wide open, but he can't see a thing. So his companions lead their blind friend by the hand and take him into Damascus. He waits for three days, completely blind, and does not eat a bite or drink a drop of anything. Meanwhile, in Damascus, A disciple named Ananias had a vision in which the Lord Jesus spoke to him. Ananias. Here I am, Lord. 
get up and go to the straight boulevard. Go to the house of Judas and inquire him about a man from Taurus, Saul by name. He is praying to me at this very instant. He has had a vision, a vision of a man by your name who will come lay hands on him and heal his eyesight. Lord, I know who you're talking about. I heard rumors about this fellow. He's an evil man and has caused great harm for your special people in Jerusalem. I've heard that he has authorized by the religious authorities to come here and chain everybody who associates with your name. None of that matters anymore. Go. I have chosen him to be my instrument, to bring my name far and wide, to outsiders, to kings, to the people of Israel as well. I have much to show him, including how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias went and entered the house where Saul was staying. He laid his hands on Saul and called to him. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, sent me to you so you can rein your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At the instant, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. So he got up, received the ceremonial washing, identifying him as a disciple, ate some food. Remember, he had not eaten for three days and regained his strength. He spent a lot of time with the disciples in Damascus over the next several days as their brother, not their persecutor. Then he went into the very synagogues he had intended to purge, proclaiming, Jesus is God's son, our liberating king. So it's so striking now knowing this uh, Ezekiel passage, having it in our minds for what Paul may have been thinking. You know, he comes in and he has this vision of exactly what he has meditated on, you know, perhaps dozens or hundreds of times. He's meditated on this before. And then here he has a real life encounter with it. But there's only one problem. He has an encounter with the exact opposite of what he expects to have an encounter with. He's expecting an encounter with Yahweh, the glorious God of Israel, and instead he sees Jesus. He's really surprised by this moment that he even later writes uh, in one of his letters, have I not seen the face of Jesus? And he, I, I think he's probably maybe recalling this moment here where He's seeing the glory of God, and it just so happens to be Jesus. I can't imagine the, uh, the shock that he would be in. And this is uh, from Acts 9, 1 through 20. And this is the artwork of, of Ananias um, healing, healing Saul. Uh, to do a little, uh, before we dive in a little bit further, let's talk about Acts a little bit. So Acts is the sequel of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke also wrote Acts. Um, I think we have, yeah, so Luke, Acts, Facts. So uh, the author has been traditionally known as Luke, a companion of uh, Paul and the apostles in Acts. So uh, we know that, that Luke was somewhere involved or who we attribute the Gospel of Luke to also wrote this. Uh, a lot of scholars will say that, uh, you know, we deem it Luke, but it's just an unknown uh, companion of the apostles during this time. Uh, date, 
you can find anywhere from 80 to 95 uh, CE for when it was written. Um, most likely uh, took some time, uh, you know, Luke is usually uh, dated around 70 to 80, and then most people obviously think that this was written right afterwards. So I would probably say uh, 85 is a pretty, pretty safe bet. Uh, the genre of, of Acts is uh, narrative history. It, it, he's communicating something through the writing that is historical but also goes beyond history, that these narratives impact our lives in a fundamental way that we can be transformed by these narratives. So narrative history. Uh, title was actually given by Irenaeus around second century. Uh, he refers to it as Acts of Apostles. And uh, scholars aren't sure if he gave it that name or if that's uh, what it was kind of called and he just happened to be the first one to write it down. Uh, and I uh, just kind of wrote this little purpose. Uh, he is communing that God's love, Christ's love and life is now for everyone. It is this moment where Christ's love uh, goes out. You know, last week we talked about how the disciples were locked in a room. They were kind of scared uh, after uh, Jesus' Jesus's death and uh, resurrection. Jesus appears in the room and he says, go, go. And so this is kind of the, the impetus for Acts. It is uh, God's love being sent with the disciples and the apostles. Um, and like I said, we, we're traveling through the lectionary right now, which will use passages from Acts for the next several weeks as we uh, talk more about what it is for us to be sent today. And there's a particular quote that I ran across this week uh, by a Jesuit priest, uh, Daniel Berrigan, and he writes, According to the Gospel of Luke, Jesus did not wear a shroud for long. The dead man walked abroad shortly after his execution. And when we reach the final page of Luke's Gospel, Surprisingly, the other pages open. We shortly turn to the first page of the book of Acts, and the beat goes on. Acts 2 never closes. While time lasts, the book remains unfinished. Life, hope, communities newly born invade the pages, ourselves. And I like that because it really follows our challenge last week that we are now God's apostles sent from this place out into our work lives, out into our school lives, wherever it is uh, that we encounter the other, that we encounter someone in need. Um, you know, we have uh, homeless bags in the back uh, that, you know, we can put in our cars or, you know, go to uh, camps where we find people in need. And that's just one, one instance. Um, here we have, uh, after that, um, the way of Jesus. Okay, there it is, yeah. So this is a, yeah, this gives you an idea of where Paul went. He swung right by the Shire and up to Damascus. This is a legitimate map, guys. Um, serious. Texas is big. I'm from there. It's huge. So it's historical, all right? And so Paul is on, making his way to Damascus, and I love the way that they read it today because it, it's really telling. I mean, Ananias is faced with this moment where he says, oh, I know, who, I know who this Saul guy is. We've all heard about him. And he's going to 
arrest us, or worse. He's going to do really terrible things, and Jesus just says, just go to him. Go to him. He's, he's praying. He, and then the first thing Ananias says to Paul, he addresses him as what? Does anybody remember? Brother. He incorporates him already into the family. I mean, I'm sure he's terrified. I mean, you would have to be terrified, but the first thing that he does is incorporate Saul as brother into God's family. In the way, I mean, we talked in Bible study uh, the past couple weeks about how uh, this early faction of men and women, the apostles, uh, you know, they are called the way. I mean, Christianity doesn't even exist at this point. They're just a faction of Judaism that Paul is being so legalistic, right, because the law in uh, Paul's mind stands above everything else. So Paul is doing Yahweh. He's doing God's duty by going to Damascus, rounding up all of Ananias' friends and putting them in prison. I mean, that is doing God's will for Paul. And God stops Paul in his tracks, says, I you know, have something else for you. So the way. We're talking about being on the road. We're talking about being on a journey, and I love that the early Christians were just called the way. Uh, the way was a protest to both the legalism of Saul and the Pharisaic religion, and it was also a protest to Caesar and the Roman occupation at the time. Uh, you may have remembered when they're reading, uh, Saul says, Lord. You have this title for Jesus, Lord, Lord. In the early Christians, the early followers of the way, that's what they, that was their way of publicly protesting. You had to, at this point in history, claim Caesar as Lord. Caesar is Lord, is what you would have to say. That was a title deemed upon Caesar as God, essentially. And so it was a, a slight at the Roman occupation for the followers of the way, these early followers of Jesus, to say, Jesus is Lord. You know, it's kind of part of our Christianese these days where we say, oh, you know, it's in our, all of our songs, Lord, Lord, and it doesn't have that bite to it that it would have had in those first, uh, first decades when they're saying, no, Jesus is Lord. You know, that's, that'll get you crucified. Uh, that'll get you thrown uh, in jail, or at the very least, Paul will come hunt you down and, you know, do, you know, do whatever they do. So, the followers of the way. Um, the law of the way filtered everything through love God and love neighbor. Jesus subverted the Pharisaic religion and the Pharisaic law with the new law is love God and love neighbor. And that filters everything they did and everything we do. It was a radical self-offering love, a type of love that sent Ananias the, to, the num to the number one uh, enemy of the way, Saul, in order to heal him and then to incorporate him into their family. That is the type of radical self-giving love. And uh, I'll just quote, I'll close with uh, another quote um, from uh, Father Daniel Berrigan. He said, Christians cry out to their God. Does no resource avail? The community, for all of its weakness, is gifted with a supreme resource. It is governed not by the law, but by the Spirit. 
the same spirit that creates martyrs of mere women and men who will avail to bring the persecutor to me. One in the same spirit. A nice balance between the works of the spirit, the making of the martyrs, and the changing of hearts. This is not invariably maintained in history. The martyrs multiply, the persecutors raise the sword with venomous fervor. The martyrs cry out, how long, O Lord? How long does the sword govern? Does it govern all of history? Well, with that, I guess we will close. Uh, there is a second part to that quote that closes, and it won't come up. But um, things don't always, technology doesn't always work. Sometimes people cut us off in traffic, and we feel like fools uh, when we curse at them. But in the end, God's grace uh, prevails over all of these, and um, let's close. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, being there. Wherever we are along the way, you are there. Um, whether we anticipate it, whether we think it's something else entirely, you are always there to subvert our understandings, subvert our best understandings. You come to us and tell us to go to the other to go in harm's way sometimes. When it doesn't really make sense, you tell us to put self aside and put radical self-offering love above all others. To love God and to love our neighbor. That is what we want to filter our lives through and to live by. And so we pray as we leave this place that that would be on our hearts, in our minds, if we carry anything out of here that we would be governed by a radical self-offering love that goes to the other, that goes to the neighbor, that goes to the person that nobody wants to sit next to at lunch. And that's who your radical love is for. Um, to remind us that it's for us when we need it most. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.